It's been seven years since we started the Law Matters radio show with the intent to open the lines of communication between you and all law enforcement agencies. Over the course of the last few years, we have become painfully aware of the negative headlines national media has projected across the country, specifically designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose jobs it is to enforce it. Law Matters show wants you to hear from the source rather than a misleading soundbite so you can decide for yourself. It's time we really listen to and support those who spend their lives protecting us. We want you to join us by leading the way and thanking them for their service and keeping this conversation going. Please help support the Law Matters 501c3 mission at lawmatters1030.org. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. In the studio today, we have Steve, I can't even say Steve, Steve Serbolic, who is an attorney for the as cops and we have david stone who is the executive director and on the phone we have hal kemper who's going to give us an update on what's going on in russia (laughs) sherry a lot's going on in russia uh i think we just took a trip in the wayback machine to august 1991 um it's uh appears to be an armed rebellion uh uh you've any uh who's the head of the Wagner Group, he's been very critical for months of the Ministry of Defense and the regular Russian military uh, withholding uh, ammunition support from his uh, mercenary group that's been fighting uh, in mostly the uh, eastern area of Ukraine, particularly around Bakhmut. And then uh, some weeks back, he pulled his forces. He claimed that he'd taken Bakhmut, which is somewhat debatable, uh, he pulled his forces out, turned it over to the Russian military. But not too long after that, uh, the Ministry of Defense, with Putin's back, uh, backing, had said that they were going to absorb all these private mercenary companies and militias into the regular Russian military. That would have wiped out his, his base, his, his Wagner group, as a separate entity. So it's been kind of questionable what he was going to do for some time. Well, yesterday... He came out and put out this video saying that his forces had been attacked by the Ministry of Defense. They killed 2,000 of them. He was standing in front of a bunch of smoking ground. There appeared to be some, um, appeared to be, you know, dead Wagner fighters on the ground. And he went on a rant where he basically said, uh, he was, in so many words, going to raise up arms or, or he's going to go after the Ministry of Defense to take out Defense Minister Shoigu. Uh, certainly General Gerasimov, the chief of staff. He didn't come out and attack Putin directly, but very indirectly. He said that they have been lying to Putin and lying to the Russian people about the whole thing and basically upended every reason for the uh, for the war, every Russian reason, I should say, for their, for their action, the military action or war in, in Ukraine. And that got, and state media got hacked and Russian state media, the television, actually was playing his statements on Russian state media. So uh, it went out across the country. In the meantime, he has taken the major, the city that's a southern region headquarters, Rostov-on-Don, in Russia. That's not just a command and control for all the Russian forces uh, in southern Ukraine, arguably uh, in all of Ukraine. Uh, it's also the main logistics hub. For all those forces. So he's taken the major military headquarters in Russia uh, for the Ukraine operations, and he's got a column of vehicles that have been heading north towards Moscow. 
uh, ostensibly to remove Shoigu and Gerasimov from power. Uh, they appear to have gotten pretty far. They're up around uh, Voronezh, uh, which is a little more than half the way up to Moscow. There's been reports that attack helicopters have been sent in to hit the column. At least one or two or more have been shot down by the Wagner Group. There's a huge uh, refinery fire in Voronezh, which uh, appears to have been possibly a result of one of the actions with one of the attack helicopters. Bottom line is, we're looking at uh, essentially a, 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 a coup, if you will, an attempted coup in Russia. And, and this morning, Putin came out and accused Prigozhin and anybody who follows him of high treason. So if there was any discussion, and there had been some yesterday, as to whether Putin might be behind some of this, even if he was orchestrating it, he's obviously decided that now's the time to step in and, and accuse them of uh, high treason which really is kind of crossing a Rubicon, if you will. I don't know where he can go rhetorically back on that and ever, um, you know, if, if Pergoisen was successful, ever alive with Pergoisen again. It's just, I got to tell you, this is amazing. It's like ni- August 1991. By the way, I'd remind everyone that in August 1991, the attempted KGB coup against Gorbachev, the head of the Soviet Union, uh, failed. Three months later, the Soviet Union dissolved. So these, you know, it may not be what we see right now, but certainly Putin is dramatically weakened, not just within Russia, but within every foreign capital of the world. And I got to tell you, if I was a uh, a leader of a country in Africa or or anywhere else, I'd be looking at Russia saying, hmm, I, I don't, I, you know, if you ever non-aligned and some of them are, uh, they might be rethinking that very quickly. Well, it sounds to me like there's going to be more people falling out of windows, too. I would say uh, maybe one or two. That inner ear problem uh, <laughs> with senior officials in, in Russia seems to, and, and I mean, in light of current events, it's hardly worth mentioning, but a couple of weeks ago, yet another person fell out of a high window. And that's just a regular ongoing thing. Although, if I was, uh, if I was Putin right now, I'd be kind of evaluating my own sense of balance in, in high buildings, if you know what I mean. Because... Uh, as would Shoigu and Gerasimov. And, and by the way, I should point out that uh, it appears, there was a report yesterday, that some very senior Ministry of Defense officials, like the like Shoigu's deputy, possibly, I don't know where he sits exactly in chain of command, and one of the senior generals was standing beside Prigozhin in Rostov. Uh, and, and, it's, and everyone's kind of wondering, that this is so organized, and, and they have moved so quickly. And his force and his column has not, and he didn't get a lot of resistance in, or hardly any resistance in Rostov taking over that headquarters and the columns moving north. The question is, is this Pergoisen or is this, or is he simply the, 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 the vanguard of something else going on? If I was Putin, I'd be looking to the left and the right and wonder who's, who's all involved with this whole thing. Yeah, it sounds a little organized, and you don't do that by the seat of your pants, get a wild hair and say, oh, I'm going to go invade Russia. <laughs> no, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else to do no. this weekend. Well, it's so going to be an interesting that, weekend. I don't know what there is to talk about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I know you're going to be coming on the show for the whole hour on the 15th of July, and we're going to be talking about uh, Russia, and then we're going to be talking about the NRA's involvement with Russia as well. So okay. it's going to be an interesting show. Everybody, It, 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 should, it should be. Yeah, and uh, I, I have to tell you, I think uh, whatever the story on Russia is going to change by the 15th. 
oh. because this is a fast moving, fast moving evolution here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, you have a good weekend, and thanks for bringing us up to date. Okay. Thank you, Sherry, well, and looking forward to the fifteenth. Absolutely. Right. Talk to you soon. Okay. In the studio, we have Steve. He's an attorney. He's going to keep us all on the straight and narrow so we don't get anybody fired. And we have Dave, the new, brand new executive director for ASCOPS. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay. Good, good. So how do you like your new job? Love it. Yeah. It's a great organization, but I have big shoes to fill. The Jim Parks Jim. was the former director and great guy and has yes. done a lot of work for AZ Cops and he was an amazing guy. So, what's I, he doing now? He's enjoying retirement and his grandkids. Oh, isn't that too bad? Catching up on <laughs> some sleep, I right hear. Yeah, he's getting some sleep, working out, doing things he hasn't had time to do. Yeah, and sleep was one of the big things. <laughs> exactly. So, tell us, tell the listeners what ASCAPS is about. Well, um, we provide representation for law enforcement around the state of Arizona with. We have outstanding attorneys to help when they um, have issues at work. Um, and those can be if they get into an accident when they're on the on the job or um, an officer-involved shooting. Um, it's a myriad of things. But we have an amazing group of attorneys that represent these guys. And we cover uh, corrections, um, police officers, probation officers, um, Customs and Border Protection. Um, anybody it's a membership from, thing, though, absolutely. right? Absolutely. So, can you, and I think I asked this before and I don't remember the answer, can you belong to more than one organization like this? Absolutely. Okay. So, why would you do that? You know, I don't know because <laughs> AZ Cops does such a phenomenal job uh, representing. Everybody. Uh, law enforcement that I don't know why they would want to spend their money on other organizations. And, and that's not to say that or, other organizations aren't doing a good job. I just know how good of a job AZ Cops is doing. I know one of the things, and I learned this from the conference last year, um, they do a lot of lobbying. They have a company that just lobbies for them specifically. It's not, you know, okay, I'll add you to my agenda of other people I lobby for. They are lobbying for AZ cops, correct? Yeah, we send some of our members to actually testify before the legislature. So Lieutenant Brian Thatcher from the Phoenix Police Department, who is a member of ASCOPS and who's very involved, worked with our lobbying company and with the board, and we were able to get protections from the Peace Officers Bill of Rights extended to everyone around the state. So regardless of your MOUs, we were able to make sure that the state law protects everyone. M-O-U means what? Memorandum of Understanding. Okay. So there's Tucson and Phoenix and some of the larger agencies have memos of understanding where they basically set rules for their agencies. And what we found is that sometimes those MOUs would weaken the rights of police officers. So what we did through our lobbyists and with the help of the legislature is we passed a law to say we want to make sure that officers all around the state have their due process rights protected. Absolutely. And that's important. I'm going to ask you something. I know Chief Chad is is putting together a professional staff investigator, which are civilians who have that mindset or experience, and they're going to be helping with putting together 
conclusions for crimes. I don't know if it's homicides. I don't, you know, but they're putting together the staff. They want 20 people and you have to go through training and everything. Would they fall underneath the ASCOPs? jurisdiction so they can generally speaking members of police departments can join it's up to the local agencies to decide what their membership criteria is but we do have some civilian investigators and dispatchers and police aides and support personnel that do that and those civilian investigators are really important because our homicide detectives you know burglary or property crimes detectives they're very busy out there trying to catch suspects, interviewing suspects, but there's a lot of support work that happens behind the scenes too, and there's a shortage for law enforcement. So civilian investigators can be a huge help, especially if they have experience in investigations or getting on the computer and mining Facebook and social media. Those kind of things are invaluable, and civilian investigators help support the sworn personnel. This is a really important position that he's creating, and if anybody's interested, go to the Tucson Police Department website, and it's called the Professional Staff Investigator, and they'll put you through training and everything. I remember my my husband worked out of Area 6 burglary. I remember moving the Queen Anne out of the dining room so that we could use the whole wall to put together what was going on in the city as far as burglaries because it seemed to be a very professional movement going through the city and it's things like that that you know our current guys don't have time to do that but these people you know would have that time to be able to put the puzzle pieces together so very cool i'm glad they're doing it so if you're interested go check it out go to tpd website okay what are the current challenges for law enforcement today So I can give you an example. I'm out on dozens of critical incidents responding to officer-involved shootings or in-custody deaths where officers faced dangerous situations where they had their lives flash before their eyes. In fact, one of my most recent shootings involved a suspect who was stopped by the police, then fled, then stopped again, then fled, and then tactical support personnel were able to stop the suspect. Now, spoiler alert here, this suspect inside the car had hundreds of fentanyl pills in the car. So maybe there's a reason that they decided to flee. And instead of surrendering, the suspect reached towards the center of the car, grabbed an exact replica of a handgun and pointed it at the officer. So he thought he was about to get shot and killed. But this was portrayed in the media as the suspect pointing a lighter at the police officer. And I showed you a picture. Yeah, I've seen those. That looks exactly like a handgun. So in that moment, that officer faced a dangerous situation where someone's going high rates of speed down public roads and then fleeing from the police. And then when they were stopped, finally physically stopped by a tactical support personnel, they decide that they're going to try to make the officer think that they're about to die. And those situations happen all the time. But if you have the media, instead of saying, wow, what a great job saying, well, they shot somebody with a lighter. Yeah. That's not right. That's not reality. I'm surprised they didn't say unarmed. (laughs) Oh, unarmed. Like there, there was a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a young man, I think a teenager, with a toy gun. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, he's unarmed. Well, you know what? Put yourself in the shoes of the officer in that instant. And some of these toys look really real, like the gun you just showed me. I thought it was a real gun. Absolutely. Looking at it. Absolutely. And, and, and that makes this kind of coverage makes it so that families are reluctant to send their sons and daughters to serve in law enforcement. And we need to have police officers and support personnel to help keep the community safe. And we need the people that are considering careers in law enforcement or considering staying in careers in law enforcement to understand that they're supported by the community. 
Yeah, we need public support. And I say it all the time. I've been saying it for seven years. You know, you see somebody, say thank you mm-hmm. and respect them. And we need more people who have the moral character to get into the area of law enforcement and help us out. Yeah, and we need people to talk to the, their, their elected officials, too, to say this is an important priority for me. In my mind, one of the most critical aspects of government and representation is making sure that we're safe. So tell me about some of the cases. Don't name names. We don't want to get anybody in trouble. <laughs> tell me about some of the cases, that, old cases that you've handled where it's just been a, a huge misunderstanding and maybe media got too involved with it. Well, that happens all the time. Unfortunately, you get people that want to jump to conclusions before an investigation is done. The situation that I just described where you have absolutely an objectively reasonable response by police officers to a dangerous situation then gets portrayed in the media as, oh my gosh, did we just, to your your words, did we shoot an unarmed person? And the answer is no, that's not the situation that the officer faced. Officers don't know everything. They, They can't understand all the different factors they have to go off of what they see and hear and perceive and they have to act quickly to make sure that innocent people or other police officers aren't shot and killed but when these stories come out when people you know get whipped up into a frenzy based off of a narrative that's incomplete or inaccurate it's really tough and one of the things that i hope for in all the investigations is due process and fair investigations and have all the facts accurately portrayed and that's a constant challenge because sometimes the first story or the knee-jerk reaction isn't the whole story and doesn't fully explain the officer's perspective. And sometimes they'll use a portion of a film Absolutely. instead of showing the whole thing. Absolutely. And you don't know what led up to this millisecond of activity to make that happen. And it tells a different story. And we like to, as investigations conclude, put those stories on our website. So we want people to understand and hear from the source what's happening, not just assume that, you know, what you're hearing in the media is is totally accurate, especially if something is is fluid, like something has just happened and they come on the air. And I've seen this, the mayor, the, you know, town council, whoever it is, they get on air and they'll, oh, we're going to stop this, the governor. We're going to stop this, and they'll they'll portray it as something that it isn't. And after it's investigated, they're like eating crow, but they won't do that in public. Right. Yeah, the story would be months old at that point. And that's one of the reasons why it was so important for us to be able to have our lobbyists and to have the Peace Officers Bill of Rights to make sure that officers, when they're when they commit misconduct, officers need to be held accountable. And one of the things that Dave and I talk about all the time is it's not our job to just say every officer does everything wonderful all the time. There's people that make mistakes or unfortunately, very rarely in the grand scheme of things, there are sometimes officers that engage in deliberate misconduct. And when that happens, they're going to face punishment and sometimes termination and have their certification revoked. But what we do and what's so critical to me is we make sure that due process is protected so that you're not firing somebody based off of a media story. You're getting all of the facts. You're doing the interviews. You're reviewing all the videos, not just excerpts that play on the news. And we're making sure that the full story is being weighed before decisions on personnel actions are made. And people need to understand that usually news media want to sensationalize something because that attracts listeners, 
viewers that gets everybody's attention and it's not necessarily the whole truth no and in context is really important too police officers in arizona stop hundreds of thousands of people every day i got stopped about a month ago and the vast majority (laughs) of those stops are are wonderful and professional and the officers are doing the right thing and far more often they're actually taking suspects criminal suspects into custody and stopping further crime that happens way more often than police misconduct but officers doing a good job doesn't make the evening news no unfortunately no absolutely not and it's too bad so when you do have a cop a bad actor who has had his um license revoked his badge revoked I've walked badges into the chief's office before. If there's conduct that happens to say, look, you can't you can't be a police officer anymore based off of what you did. I've been one of the first people to say, hey, man, I don't think this job is for you anymore. Yeah. But but at the same time, I want to make sure that that happens in the correct circumstances. I want to make sure that the chief, if they're going to make a decision as to whether someone's going to be terminated, I want to make sure that that's the right thing based off of the full story, not just based off of a knee jerk reaction. And that's that's what I think the public has done a lot in the last several years is this knee-jerk reaction. Oh, all law enforcement is horrible. And that's not the case. No, it's a very small percentage yeah. of bad actors. Very small. And we're talking cross-country. Mm-hmm. We're not just talking, exactly. you know, we've got some amazing people here in Arizona. Really good people. But when somebody does get revoked, does that, from one agency, does that translate to agency to agency to agency or... They get revoked from TPD and they go to Oro Valley. How does that work? So it depends on the situation. That's the best lawyer answer, right? It depends. <laughs> but uh, the reality is, is that if an officer is terminated, whether they can go to a different agency depends on why they were terminated. So if this is somebody who struggled in field training and just wasn't a good fit with the agency, but there's not an integrity issue, there's no criminal conduct, that person might lose their job at one agency, but they might take some time take some classes, kind of fix their perspective, and then another agency can hire them. Now, if they're revoked, that's done by ASPOST, the state board that deals with peace officer certification. So if it, if they were terminated because of serious misconduct or a dishonesty issue, then ASPOST can either suspend their certification for a period of time, which means, hey, you're going to take your medicine. There's going to be a period of time where you're not going to work as a law enforcement officer anywhere, but you can come back after six months or a year or two or as post can say, look, this was criminal conduct. We question your character going forward. We're going to revoke your certification. And if you're revoked by as post, then you're done in law enforcement, not just in Arizona, but in, I think, 48 other states. <laughs> There's pretty much all of them. Don't wow. ask me the one. No, I, I was just going to yeah, ask you which one. <laughs> I don't remember the one, but uh, the state certifying boards communicate with each other in virtually every state communicates and i don't even think that other state that doesn't communicate they probably just want to be on their own but they probably still wouldn't hire you if you're i bet it's texas (laughs) maybe i don't know just kidding (laughs) just kidding okay is there a brady law so brady is there is a brady law but brady is a supreme court case that says that prosecutors actually have a duty to disclose certain information to defense attorneys And there is mandatory things that have to be disclosed to defense attorneys. So if you have somebody involved in a criminal case that's a witness, and this is a misconception, it's not only for police officers. If the prosecutors know that any witness in a case, and oftentimes police officers are witnesses in cases, if the prosecutor knows that the witness has an issue with either being a convicted felon 
or an issue involving dishonesty, the prosecutor has a duty to disclose that information to the defense attorney. Now, disclosure does not mean that that information is even going to make it into the jury in the criminal case. It just means, hey, we're going to turn over this internal investigation that had a dishonesty component to it, or we're going to turn over this information about what happened in this officer's past. doesn't mean it's going to get in front of the jury. So the Supreme Court has mandatory factors that every prosecutor's office has to disclose. But then prosecutors, every individual prosecutor, so the... Tucson city prosecutor can have their own criteria for what they want to disclose under Brady, in addition to the mandatory criteria from the U.S. Supreme Court. And then there is a state list that the prosecutors group, the county attorneys have gotten together to say, we're going to share information on some of the most serious cases. But prosecutors can expand the criteria for what they want to disclose And just because information is being disclosed, there's a misconception that that means that officers are liars. That's not true. Not everyone that's involved in Brady has a dishonesty issue even. Maricopa County has expanded their criteria to include some issues with excessive force. So if you were sustained in Maricopa County for excessive force, sometimes you'll be disclosed by Maricopa County, but that doesn't mean that you had any type of dishonesty issue. So there's a huge misconception about what Brady is. Now, the state law that you're talking about says that officers have an opportunity to challenge their placement on the list. So sometimes investigations are overturned on an appeal and the county attorney doesn't even know about that. And the officer is saying, well, wait a second, this was reviewed and what I was originally placed on the list for doesn't apply anymore. Now there's a process to say, hey, you can challenge your placement on the list to make sure that there's an opportunity for officers to be heard. Well, that sounds fair. Yeah, that's... It is fair. What officers don't understand is how, for example, I can be on the Phoenix City Brady list, but not on the Maricopa County Brady list. And I get those calls all the time. And the answer is they pro- individual prosecutors can set additional standards and then the prosecutor can decide to disclose things. Now, marry that with the fact that Arizona has one of the strongest public records laws in the entire United States. So if I want to get Officer Stone's personnel file... Whether he's on the Brady list or not, I can get every commendation that he's ever had as a police officer and also every discipline that he's ever had as a police officer. And that's somewhat unique in the United States that Arizona allows the members of the public to get that. We're a very transparent state. So defense attorneys can do public records requests and get that information or build their own databases as they want to. So that's where, for me, I want to make sure that the record is accurate. But I also want to make sure that there's not an inappropriate stigma on what the Brady list or if you're Brady listed, what that means. Cause that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a liar and it doesn't mean that you can't testify in court. Now, didn't the Brady situation um, circumstances happen in the civil war? What's the story behind Brady it, itself? So Brady it's after the civil war and Brady's developed over time. And the, the downside of not disclosing information on an officer's file in particular is that it can result in criminals being released from prison. So there's actually a pretty famous case, even just from a couple of years ago, where there was a woman who murdered her kids <gasps> and she was released from prison because the agency didn't properly disclose integrity issues about an officer. So that's where prosecutors are trying to say, look, we want to make sure that our criminal convictions stick. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture is that we need to make sure that officers, again, have due process and that people understand what the list is and that information is being disclosed. Because, by the way, 
this officer's integrity issues that happened in the murderer case had nothing to do with the conviction of this woman. But the Supreme Court said, look, if you're hiding information or if you're not disclosing information to defense attorneys that they need, that violates the due process rights of criminal suspects. So this is where when I talk to officers, I say, I understand what your perspective is. I understand the stigma that doesn't belong about Brady. The reason prosecutors are doing what they're doing is they want to make sure that murderers stay in prison. That's real. And they're trying to make sure that they're upholding their obligations under the U.S. Supreme Court precedents. So we balance that for what I do for representation to explain to officers that the record's going to be correct. I want to make sure whatever's being disclosed is being correct. I want to make sure that you understand that just because something's being disclosed, that doesn't mean that you can't testify. That doesn't mean you can't be a detective or a supervisor or chief of police for that matter. But we want to make sure that the information being disclosed is accurate. And then again, huge difference between disclosure to a defense attorney and presentation in front of a jury. Just because you're on a Brady list from somewhere in the state doesn't mean that a jury ever even hears about it. It's only a disclosure requirement. Okay. Wow. That's, I've never had anybody explain the Brady situation to me so effectively until just now. Thank you. I appreciate it. I have videos on that on my YouTube channel as well. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to watch YouTube. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. On August 5th at the Burger Theater, located at 1200 West Speedway, starting at 10 a.m., Law Matters Live Radio Show is hosting a free double-feature movie event on two very serious topics every parent needs to be aware of. We are making it free because we want to see you there. Bring your friends, get out of the heat, and learn what dangers today's kids are facing and how you can help them avoid becoming a victim. Details on the event page on lawmatters1030.org website. See you there. Deputy Chuke here with Pima County Search and Rescue. If you're thinking of a trek through nature, plan ahead, look ahead, and use your head. Your future depends on it. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue, telling you again to remember that the ground heat on your pet's feet is very dangerous. The bleeding blisters that will occur is considered animal abuse. You can get arrested for this. So think before you bring Fido on a hike. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue. Reminding you that infants and toddlers do not experience heat as adults do. Consider this when bringing your young ones on a hike in temperatures of over 80 degrees. You do not want to risk that child having heat stroke or being arrested for child endangerment. This is Deputy Chuke with Pima County Search and Rescue. Save your phone's battery life so when you get lost we may contact you. Wearing bright colors that can be seen from a distance helps the effort. This is a rescue, not a scavenger hunt. On August 5th at the Burger Theater, located at 1200 West Speedway, starting at 10 a.m., Law Matters Live Radio Show is hosting a free double-feature movie event on two very serious topics every parent needs to be aware of. We are making it free because we want to see you there. Bring your friends, get out of the heat, and learn what dangers today's kids are facing and how you can help them avoid becoming a victim. Details on the event page on lawmatters1030.org website. See you there. Okay, thanks for staying with us. Our guests today are Steve and Dave. They're both with Arizona Post, or Arizona Post, ASCOPS. <laughs> and let me let me say ASCOPS stands for Arizona Conference of Police and Sheriffs. There you go. And tell us about your foundation. I know you have one. Well, we have the um, um, ASCOPS Foundation, and we that money goes toward... Um, Things like if an officer uh, gets into a serious accident, uh, we are able to maybe help out with their mortgage that month. 
or um, different different things like that. Um, if somebody uh, is interested in in donating to AZ Cops Foundation, uh, they can um, call the office. It's five two zero six two 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 one five, or they can mail a check. Um, the address is twenty five twenty four West Ruthroff. That's spelled R U T H. R-A-U-F-F you Road. Moved? We did about a year ago. Upgraded the quarters. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And the uh, the zip code, it's in Tucson, Arizona, and the zip code is 85705. And uh, the foundation is a 501c3. And, um, um, yeah, we, we really enjoy helping out where we can. Um, we have an officer in the state that was hurt pretty seriously, and we were able to help out a little bit with doctor bills um, until, you know, work comp took over, those kind of things. So we do as much as we can. Kind of like gap insurance. Yeah, That's a little very, bit. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we need to take care of the people who take care of us. I mean, absolutely. It's very important. So, Steve, we've been talking about situations. Tell us how you fix situations, because sometimes you get in a situation and it's jumbled. How do you fix it? Yeah, so I'm going to take this from a couple different ways. The first is I would encourage leaders in police agencies and members of the public that talk to leaders in police agencies to make sure that their policies match what the Supreme Court says. So our officers face dangerous situations like the one that I described at the top of the show. And things like use of force policies, kind of like the Brady, there's a minimum policy standard that the Supreme Court says should be there, which is that officers need to be objectively reasonable when they use force. But there's a trend that I'm seeing, which is unfortunate, where agencies are trying to put additional language or restrictions or putting things in there that can confuse the public and confuse officers about what they can do when they're faced with those critical incidents. I got to ask you something. Sure. Okay. You've got somebody who is, you know, strung out on drugs, just, you know, superpower type thing. I don't know what some of these drugs do to people, but it's just like they're out of control. And if it takes, you know five, six, seven people to hold that person down so, number one, they're not hurting themselves, they're not damaging other property or people. What do you call use of force in a situation like that? Because it's out of control. It's like one person can't hold them down. Yeah, I can tell you what I would call that, and I can tell you what the Supreme Court would call that, which is officers need to be objectively reasonable in the force that they use. Now, unfortunately, there's a trend for some of these policies to say, well, you can only use proportional force at that point in time. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. Because to your point, you have to get somebody under control in a dangerous situation so they don't hurt themselves or hurt other people. The Supreme Court says that officers need to be objectively reasonable. It's a case that's the landmark case on this called Graham versus Connor. And I think that policies should make it clear that in those situations, officers need to be reasonable in the force that they use. But getting into other words and policies like necessary or proportional just confuses the situation because who knows in a moment what's necessary. But what I can do is tell you objectively reasonable means you look at it from the perspective of a different officer in the situation and is based off of what they perceived at the time is what the officer doing reasonable. That should be the touchstone that we can all agree on. So one of the things is to make sure that policies are focused on reasonable actions by officers and not putting in other confusing language. 
The other thing that I would do, obviously, is to encourage politicians to publicly support police officers when campaigning and then when in office and when leading. So it's important for the perception of officers to say, look, my leadership at my agency, my leadership on city council supports what I do in keeping the community safe. Because what I hear all the time is that members of the community, especially in high crime neighborhoods, want more police officers. But you get a loud group of people that will show up at a city council meeting or a town council meeting and you get, you know, 10 people that are yelling about we don't like the police for whatever agenda they're trying to run. That's not consistent with what most people want. Can you explain what situational awareness is and how it translates to law enforcement? Sure. So officers need to be again, reasonable in their conduct that they have. So situational awareness is encouraging police officers to understand where they are and the factors that they're going to be using and making their decisions for how to perceive next. So if you're going into a traffic stop or a domestic violence call, statistically speaking, those are two of the most dangerous situations that officers could face because they don't know what's behind that door, be it a car door or a house door. So situational awareness is saying, Understand what you're walking into, be prepared, and then be reasonable in the actions that you take next, because that's what we expect for police officers. The other thing to do to fix these issues is to support officers in their true time of needs. So we have officers that are in car accidents or get injured on the job. And then, as Dave was saying, they might not be able to make their bills that month. And Agencies try to do what they can for sick leave or they try to do what they can to support their officers through workers' comp, but that doesn't fit all the gaps. Unfortunately, some of our officers are spending a lot of time on overtime or specialty details to try to make ends meet. So when they are not able to work for one of those reasons, that's where organizations like the ASCOPS Foundation can step in, but they can't do it on their own. This is where we need community support as well to be able to help out officers and their families when they're under pressure and the community can help out and provide outreach in that way, which has just a life changing impact in those times of need. Oh, absolutely. I know we've, we've had an officer recently was in a horrific accident and not his fault. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that the, your organization helped him out. I know we, we tried to help him out a little bit too, but. And for every story that makes the news, we have, 10 or 100 more that we would love to be able to help out with. And it's just a matter of finding ways to say to officers, both in shows like this and the work that you've been doing, to say the community supports you. And then also quietly in those times where they're saying, I don't want people to know that my wife has cancer and I was just injured on the job and I can't afford a hospital bed to, to rent to help me out through this. Is there anything that you guys can do? And that's where organizations like the ASCAPS Foundation can help. Absolutely. Yeah, so if if you're inclined, ask cops, look it up on your computer, ask cops, and, you know, donate to them. Yeah, it's They're, azcops.org. Yeah, dot .org. The, yep, dot .org. It's, it's a nonprofit. It's a website. Mm-hmm. And it's tax deductible. Okay, let's get back to, it takes almost seven people to hold somebody down. Sure. How do you define... Um, what you're talking about, because I'm thinking you've got to hold this person down so they don't hurt themselves and everything around them. How do you define that when you're talking about, I don't know. Reasonableness? 
yeah, how do you define reasonableness when you have to have so many people and they're still moving? Sure. They're still moving. They're still trying to fight you. Absolutely. So what we what they do in law enforcement is from day one in the academy, they talk about the public trust that goes into people with a badge. And that public trust takes a couple different formats. One of them is the trainers make sure to the best of their ability that their training is both lawful and effective. So people that are involved in setting the criteria, which comes all the way down from as post criteria statewide to then the trainers at the academy to their experts that they have, they say, look, we understand the situations that law enforcement officers are facing. We need to give them the tools for success. So we're going to walk through scenarios first in a classroom setting where we're going to talk about it. Then they'll demonstrate it to say this is what happens if you have someone who's on drugs or is otherwise resisting. And then next, we're going to say, what are the tactics that are proven to work? So you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You're not the first person to face someone fighting law enforcement officers or resisting detention. What are the tools that can be effective? And that can range from simple open hand techniques, which are pressure points that can range to some of the tools on their tool belts. Is this a proper use of pepper spray, OC spray? Is this going to be an electric control device, the fancy name for tasers? (laughs) Or is this even potentially going to be a deadly force situation? There was a situation that I was at, another critical incident where someone got up, um, tried to flee from the police after he was sitting at a scene And then even when he was on the ground, he reached underneath to his waistband and pulled out a gun and had it pointed at one of the officers who was going hands-on during this resistance. And that was a deadly force situation. The officers in that situation actually needed to shoot the person before he shot them or somebody else on the scene. But all of that in determining what is objectively reasonable is saying, what are the officers facing And then what does the training say about what to do when they face that scenario? And sometimes it doesn't look good. Sometimes it doesn't look good on a cell phone video or a partial video or from whatever angle that you have. But the way that we evaluate these cases is not how does it look on video or how does it look on a clip? The way that we evaluate it is to say, what did the officer perceive at the time? And was their actions based off of their perception, based off of their situational awareness, was, were their actions reasonable? And that's how we judge, that's how we properly judge uses of force. So did, were you trained? Yes. Officers are trained in virtually every situation you can imagine. And then based off of their training, is what you did consistent with the training and objectively reasonable in the circumstance? I know training across the country is, is coming under fire, especially in Minnesota. Not to pick on Minnesota, but I'm going to. What? Um, okay, you're trained to do one thing, and all of a sudden, public perspective says, "Oh, we don't want them doing that anymore." What rights does that law enforcement officer who's in trouble now have? What? So, in Arizona specifically, under the Peace Officers Bill of Rights, the state law that now, obviously, is based off of our lobbying and applies to all the officers here, officers are only disciplined based off of just cause. And just cause sounds like, you know, something that we could debate about what the meaning is, but just cause is defined under state law. And one of the things under just cause is, among many other factors, is would a reasonable officer have known at the time based off of their training or policies or experience, would they have known that their action could subject them to discipline? 
So, for example, in some of these consent decrees that you're seeing that the DOJ is trying to seek, they say, oh, well, if you're using a chokehold on somebody, which is a terrible name for it, it's a carotid control technique. If you're using a chokehold, they're now saying that that's deadly force. Well, that wasn't decided by anyone until 2019 or 2020 to start. So then the question that we ask as to whether the officers were objectively reasonable is not what did we decide in 2023 based off of what happened in 2019. It's right. how were those officers trained and was their situation reasonable based off of the training that they had at the time? And we're very fortunate that state law says that is the standard for law enforcement discipline. You don't judge them after the fact. The Supreme Court talks about 2020 hindsight. So if you look back in time, it's always clear as to what people think you should have done. Uh, if, you, if that officer, the first situation I mentioned, if that officer knew that that was only a lighter, would they have used deadly force in that, in that scenario? And the answer is no, but that's not the law. That's and that's not what, what just cause says. So in Arizona, we get to say, okay, I understand that you want to change the rules going forward. Chiefs can do that. Agencies can change their policies. But for officer discipline and accountability, state law says if you're going to suspend, demote, or terminate somebody, you have to make sure that the officer reasonably knew that their conduct would have violated the standards. And when you're in a situation... And, you know, it's just like all hell's breaking loose. You're in a situation. You only have a a millisecond to decide what to do in some cases. Yep. In some cases, it's, you know, gee, it's me or him or Mm -hmm. her, whatever the situation is. And you have to make that decision. So, Sherry, this is the best part of my job is that one of the things that I do as a panel attorney and how I describe my job is I'm one of the guys when the officers need to call 911, when the cops need somebody to help out. I'm the guy that helps them out in those critical incidents. So I tell people that I represent virtually every time, I don't do your job. I'm not the one taking the suspect on drugs into custody. I'm not the one that was facing a gun pointed in my face. It's my job to say, look, I don't can't change the past. My time machine's broken. I can't, I can't fix what happened. Can't unring the bell. But I can help you articulate why you did what you did at the time was based off of your perception as to what was reasonable because far less than 1% of police officers are engaged in deliberate misconduct. Far less, a tiny, tiny percentage of people are actually going out there and trying to do something bad. Most of the officers that I represent did the best that they could and sometimes they make mistakes, but they did the best that they could with the information and the training and their experience that they had at the time. And the best part of my job is I get to say, you did your job I'm glad you're safe, hopefully. And it's now my time to do my job to help with the articulation so that everyone reviewing the situation can understand why what you did was reasonable at the time based off of your perception, based off of your situational awareness. Okay. You had people, law enforcement, they're in, sometimes they're in really bad situations on a daily basis, depends on their turf, wherever they are in the in the country, actually. What does ASCOPs do about mental health? What do they provide, if anything? We have tons of resources for mental health. It's a huge priority for our organization and for the resources that we connect them with. So we have partner organizations that we can refer people to depending on where they live in the state of Arizona. So agencies have EAP, employee assistance programs. If the officer feels comfortable going through their agency, those are confidential by law. They're provided 
by law, agencies are mandated to provide officers with those resources. The Craig Tiger Act has enhanced some of those resources. Craig Tiger was a Phoenix police officer who faced some pretty significant mental health challenges, and he wasn't properly supported at the time after facing critical incidents. So the Craig Tiger Act was passed by the legislature to make sure that officers who have experienced critical incidents or serious on-the-job stress have access to mental health counseling and some protected leave to make sure that they can process through those critical events. His name is Tiger? Tiger. That's a cool name. I'm sorry he went yeah. through that, though. But, you yeah. know, I, I don't think people realize when, you know, law enforcement officers, they they deal with dead bodies. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, kids that are, you know, in bad situations. It has a toll. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean, you know, just because you want to be able to talk to somebody, sometimes you can't take that day home to your spouse and relate it to them so that, you know, you're just spreading, you know, everybody's nervous now. You need to talk to somebody who understands what's going on and knows that, you know, that you need, it's a dump. Yeah. I need to dump. Absolutely. This is what happened today. I need to dump and I, you don't, I don't want to put this burden on my spouse. So the departments have the EAP and professional staff for that. There's also great organizations like Under the Shield, which provides peer counseling that we've worked with and referred officers to. Some of our members are actual peer counselors for that. So if you're saying, look, I don't want to go through the formal EAP process. I don't want my department to even possibly know administratively that I'm talking to somebody. There's a superhero complex that some officers have where they're saying, I don't, I don't want to appear weak. And it's not weak. It's to your point, going through some of these serious critical incidents can have a huge mental health toll. So we've, we've developed a layered approach. I think that's fair to say where we say you can work with your department, you can work with peer support, We have mental health professionals that we've partnered with around the state that specifically focus on law enforcement stress because managing that early and managing that in a productive and helpful way, turning to the bottle is not not a good coping mechanism, but it's all too common in the field. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And people feel they can't, because of that stigma, can't get the help they need. And sometimes it's not even just like, oh, I need mental help. I just need to talk to somebody who understands. Absolutely. And... You know, there's um, Copline is also a really good yep. resource for yeah, people. Yeah, and Copline, if you call Copline, you are going to get a police officer, someone in law enforcement, or somebody that's retired from law enforcement. They're not necessarily trained counselors, but they're an ear, and you can dump just so, like you. Yeah, somebody who's been there, done that, so they understand what's going on. It's very frustrating if you go in to talk to somebody, they have no clue what you're talking about right. and they're like you know it helps to have somebody who can relate and be able to talk to talk you through some bad situations and i really think spouses need to be prepared for things too even though you know they're not on the job they kind of are so do you have any situations where you've had a spouse that you know hey i need to to talk to people or i need to get involved somehow Absolutely. No, that's a serious concern because sometimes you have officers. I've had this happen directly where officers have been involved in a critical incident and they go home and they're like, I'm, I'm actually okay. My wife is super nervous about me going back to work. She's experiencing stress, sleepless nights, things like that. So we do have resources for spouses available too, both through the ASCOPS organization. And then one of the things that I'm working on with a bunch of agencies is to try to get direct lines that spouses can call even if 
the officer member doesn't doesn't feel like they need that support. Yeah, because sometimes they really they need that support. Absolutely. Yeah, you you go through you're waiting for a phone call and like I I told our chief, you know, prepare 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 before it happens and pray it never does. Because you never know. But yeah, I'm glad you've got those resources because spouses need it too. So tell me more about where did you come? Tell me about you. We've got like three minutes. Tell me about you because you're you're not just the executive director of ASCOPS now. You are a law enforcement person who retired from what agency? I retired from the Tucson Police Department. And? Um, and I did a lot of different things on the department, a lot of different assignments that I was in. Um, it was, uh, I had a fantastic career. I had a lot of awesome opportunities. Um, backing up before that, I was born in Tucson and um, I just always wanted to be a police officer. I eventually became one, and and uh, and I retired. And I did a little bit of PI work after I uh, retired. And um, uh, that can be boring. It wasn't too boring, but yeah. but uh, this this opportunity came along, and and uh, like I said, I have big shoes to fill, but I'm really enjoying it. Very cool. Yeah, this is this is a great agency, and. If you're not a member and you're listening, you should become a member. Of course, you have to be law enforcement, right? You can't just be Joe Blow off the street. Or involved in a law enforcement agency. And my thing is, is for those critical incidents and providing that support, it's so critically important to have support there. If you're involved in a critical incident and you're in law enforcement, or if you're just in law enforcement as a support personnel and you want to make sure that your rights are protected, you really want to do be a member of an organization. And ASCAPS is by far the best. We have the most comprehensive plan to protect our members, sworn and unsworn, to make sure that their rights are defended. It's call centers. The call dispatchers. Dispatchers. Are they? Can they be members? Yeah, depending on the agency. Most agencies allow their dispatchers to be either associate members of the local group, which then makes you an ASCOPS member, or sometimes even full members, depending on your agency. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I want to thank you both for being here. Thanks for and having us. And thanks for the work you do. Thank you for voicing the support for law enforcement. I think having definitely. these venues is critical so that the people that are out there protecting our rights know that the community supports us as well. I appreciate that. Thank you. And are you the only law for, uh, attorney for ASCOPS? Oh, hell no. There's a panel of attorneys. <laughs> so I'm one of many. I'm very proud of the work that I do. And defending police officers is essentially my full-time job. But we have many, many attorneys all around the state, some excellent attorneys, and some that spoke, focus on things that I don't, like workers' comp protections or retirement benefits or other aspects of, that are specialized. We have attorneys that do a wide range of things. So yeah, if I'm off in Tahiti on vacation, there's 11 or you know more than that other people that they can call. Yeah, so, we have a great group. Great group. That's that's so very, important. Very blessed. Okay, don't forget, August 5th, we want to see everybody at the Burger Theater. It's going to be a double feature. It's free. And we want you to know what you don't know about so that you can protect your family. And until next week, shop local, stay safe, and we'll talk to you then.
On August 5th at the Burger Theater, located at 1200 West Speedway, starting at 10 a.m., Law Matters Live Radio Show is hosting a free double feature movie event on two very serious topics every parent needs to be aware of. We are making it free because we want to see you there. Bring your friends, get out of the heat, and learn what dangers today's kids are facing and how you can help them avoid becoming a victim. Details on the event page on lawmatters1030.org website. See you there.